Okay, tonight we're going to take a look at another lesson uh, called the Law of Love. I'm going to explore that a little bit. We've been uh, talking about several different things over the last few weeks, and we have two more lessons uh, in this particular study. We talked about love feels like love, three kinds of love. If knowledge is a tool, what are we building? Truth without love isn't true. True love liberates. And tonight, we're going to talk about the law of love because it does appear in the Old Testament. We'll look at the fact that uh, it appears in the book of Deuteronomy, and the book of Leviticus, but it's summarized in the Old Testament. So um, tonight, I'd like for us to begin in the book of Romans. So if you want to find your way to Romans chapter 13, we're going to take a look at uh, Romans 13 as kind of a summary for what has been stated before in the Bible, but it seems to have been summarized uh, not only by Jesus, but also by uh, the Apostle Paul as well. Uh, so uh, tonight, I want to talk about uh, life is all about relationships. I think we forget that a little bit when we read the scriptures. One of the things that we often do is we look at a variety of different uh, bits of information in the scriptures, but when you look at it as a whole, the Bible is really the interaction of people with each other and with God. So life is all about relationships and law, if we were to combine the idea of the law of love, uh, is how we order that life of love with other people. So law is about the ordering of things in the right way, and then life is about relationships. And that's how we kind of come up with this idea of the law of love. So I want us to take a look uh, at Romans 13. And this is an interesting book because out of all the epistles in the New Testament, we might say that the book of Romans is probably the most theological of them all. And yet at the same time, the emphasis on the end of the book is on relationships, specifically how Jews and Gentiles are to get along. And then as uh, we come to chapter 13, let's come down to verse 8. And it says here, Paul speaking, let no wind, uh, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever, whatever other commandment there may be are summarized in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul really does try to take all of the Torah and summarize it in the law of love. And what we find here is he mentions a few commandments out of the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And then he just kind of generalizes and says, whatever other commandment there may be, and I think he has in mind there the entire law of the Old Testament, he says, whatever they may be, they are summarized in this idea of love. And so when he does that, what's interesting is we are kind of left on our own to work it out. And what I mean by that is 
Uh, how does love look on the, in the workplace, uh, in the family, in the neighborhood, or among people uh, under the same uh, flag as fellow citizens? Um, so I think what's interesting here is one other way to kind of summarize this idea of the law of love is stated by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. This is often called the golden rule. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. That's in Matthew 7, verse 12. But you'll notice even Jesus gives a generality there. He says, you know, what you would have uh, people do to you, that's what you should do to others. And then he makes this statement, which is an interesting one, because it's going to call us to try to tease out how we put this law of love into practice. He says, uh, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And yet at the same time, there's not a lot of specific things there. So there is this guidance that, hey, whatever love looks like, you're fulfilling what God intended from the very beginning. So life is all about relationships. Uh, law is about the ordering of things to the, uh, in the best way. And then we're given this general law to kind of work it out, figure it out. Um, and what we find is that we're called upon to put this principle into practice and we can't follow it legalistically because love might look different in different situations and in uh, different settings uh, and with different types of people as well. So what I want to do tonight, and this is not in your notes, but I'm going to read it to you. Uh, if you want to look it up, um, this uh, parable, which is a rabbinic parable uh, that's uh, told uh, by the rabbis, and you'll see there a rabbi by the name of Suzanne Brody at uh, wordpress.com. There is a, um, a link there that you could look it up if you want to uh, reread this particular parable again. But I'm going to read it for you tonight, and then I'd like to talk about it. Um, this comes as part of a collection uh, out of what is called the Seder Eliahu uh, Zuta, and it's a parable about a king who had two servants. And I want you to think about this as I read it, uh, and I want to ask if it sounds familiar to you, okay? So this is not in the Bible. This is a parable told among rabbinic scholars. Okay, here it is. Here's this mortal king who had two servants uh, whom he loved with a perfect love. And it says, to one he gave a measure of wheat and to the other he gave a measure of wheat. To one, the first one, he gave a bundle of zitta and of, of flax and to the other, a bundle of flax. What, he, uh, what did the clever one of the two do? He took the flax and wove it into a napkin. He took the wheat and made it into fine flour by sifting the grain first and grinding it. Then he kneaded the dough and baked it. He set the loaf on the table, spread the napkin over the loaf and left it to await the coming of the king. But the foolish one of the two did not do anything at all. After a while, the king came into his house and said to the two servants, my sons, bring me what I gave you. 
One brought out the table with the uh, loaf baked with a fine flour on it and with the napkin spread over the bread. And the other brought out his wheat in a basket with a bundle of flax over the wheat grains. And then the a king said, what a shame and what a disgrace. So let me ask first, um, does that story kind of sound familiar to you at all? Yeah, I see uh, Shelly shaking her head. It's very similar to a type of parable that Jesus told as well. Um, but what does the parable mean? So you have a king, he gives some wheat, he gives some flax, the one uses it and the other one does not. Uh, the one that uses it makes it into flour and bakes a loaf of bread and then takes the flax and makes a napkin out of it and, and puts it over the loaf of the bread. The other one simply kept the, um, the wheat to be wheat and the flax to be flax and did nothing with it. So what the rabbis, now this is not, um, this is not Jesus, it's not Paul, it's, but the rabbis say that um, the intent of this parable is that when the Holy One gave the Torah to the nation of Israel, he gave wheat to be turned into flour and as flax to be turned into cloth for garments. Now, what the rabbis are trying to say is he gave you the ingredients, but you've got to figure out how to use the ingredients and make something of it. And so according to the rabbis, God expects humans to search for new meanings and develop and adapt to new circumstances. It is the one who engages in such a project who acts in accordance with God's will, not the one who safeguards the original meaning. So what he's saying is God gave the law to the nation of Israel, but how that law applies cannot always be written down into an irrevocable type of decree. Now that was initially intended uh, by the way the book of Leviticus is read, correct? There seems to be a law for everything. But later rabbis began to understand that as life and circumstances change, these laws do not always apply in the same way because life changes, circumstances changes, and so forth. And so they began to understand that the Torah as it was given was at a point in time, but we must adapt, we must be able to adjust, and even to a certain extent, create new means and develop um, habits under new circumstances if we're going to carry out God's will. So does that make sense to everybody what the rabbis were trying to say there is that it's one thing to have kind of the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, but as life changes, how do you take those same commandments and adapt them into new situations? And what does that look like as people continue to mature and adjust and grow? So fast forward then to the New Testament, where you have Jesus saying, hey, love sums up the law and the prophets. And Paul, as we see here in Romans 13, he says the same exact thing. He says, uh, he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And in case we missed it down in verse 10, he says the same exact thing. Love does no harm to its neighbor. 
Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So this parable is, number one, uh, something out of our own um, understanding of how the Jewish rabbis were uh, trying to understand how life changes, how, um, how you need to mature and adapt. And you see that taking place to a certain extent in the New Testament. So you have a whole book uh, in Leviticus telling you how to offer sacrifices. By the time you get to the prophets, um, you get uh, the prophets saying, no, God desires obedience, not sacrifice. And even amongst their own understanding, they had to make adjustments along the way to understand that God expects people to mature, to grow, to develop, and to adapt. So let me see if you have any thoughts there. Um, do you have any questions? Um, well, I, I was thinking about this um, when I was having my quiet time today. I'm reading, I was reading the last chapter of Ephesians and Paul is giving instructions to slaves and to their masters. Mm -hmm. And today that just doesn't apply in our society. Right. And, it, and in fact, over the course of the development of civilization, we would say not only does it not apply, but that actually at a point in time, we had to overturn the institution of slavery because it, it was wrong and um, it mistreated people. And, and you can't build that case out of the Bible, but we develop from uh, the foundations that we learn about love and such as the one we're reading here, how do we love one another, uh, including master and slave, and then you move beyond that set of circumstances, and, um, and then you find that um, there was a whole civil war that occurred over this, and to a certain extent, uh, this battle between um, white and brown and black people is still not done. It's still a tension between white supremacists and others that are trying to fight for their rights and stuff. So um, you're exactly right uh, that it is an institution that no longer applies. And yet here we read it in the book of Ephesians and a few other places as well in the New Testament um, and all over the Old Testament. But um, yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a good point to be made. In Paul's defense, he was telling them to be kind to them, the yeah. masters to be kind to the slaves, and the slaves to treat, yeah, to treat great, everybody nice. That was a great stride forward, wasn't it? I mean, at oh, that yeah. point in time, that was a great advancement to think that you're going to start treating your slaves as people rather than property. Yeah, so you're right. And their slaves looked like them. Yeah, right. They had slaves of the same color. Yeah, right. That's right. Okay, so that's that's a rabbinical parable. Now I want us to I want us to take a look at this particular passage in the book of Matthew. So let's go over to uh, Matthew chapter twenty-five, and it seems as though Jesus, familiar with rabbinic teaching, um, probably used a lot of similar type of stories that he uh, knew from his own upbringing, as well as his 
understanding of the Torah. And uh, this particular uh, parable begins actually down in verse 14 of chapter 25, even though in your notes, I only put verses 26 through 30. It begins in verse 14. So it's not too long. So we'll we'll start there. It says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money to another two talents and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the man who received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. So here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant, you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the ones with 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and will and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's a pretty poignant parable and it's supercharged with uh, language there to make the point. And I think it's the same point that this other parable is trying to make. You can't hide it and bury it. You're expected to do something with it. And so in this case, there's a lot of debate. What is the talent here? Is it money? Uh, what does this money or talent represent? Is it, um, is it our abilities? Is it our knowledge? Is it our opportunities? What is it? Um, it, it we're left to figure it out on our own. Um, but the principle is basically the same, and um, you move beyond the point of the original investment, if it's money that we're talking about here, so that you can develop it and mature it and gain interest on it, so on and so forth. If it's, if it's our time, our talents, uh, whatever it may be, um, don't bury it, find it, use it, invest it. In other words, but... In the parable, just like in the rabbinic parable, we're not told how to do it. There's this expectation that we are to take it and to use it and to develop it, but there are no instructions there. They have to figure that out on their own. That's the point that I'm trying to make 
that goes all the way back to the law of love. Yes, we're to love one another. Yes, it summarizes all the law and the prophets. But what that looks like probably changes from age to age and people to people and culture to culture uh, because we're not all the same. And the way love looks will need to be uh, preyed upon. It will need to be practiced. It will need to be evaluated as to whether it is working or not. And I think what we see very subtly here is the Old Testament moves away from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, which is supposedly the spirit of love toward other people and toward God. And if that is the case, then what we find is there's the expectation that we will continue to do this work and we will not be bound by the letter of the law. That was that was the problem that Jesus and the Pharisees had. They were bound by the letter of the law, the idiosyncrasies, the jots and the tittles and all that type of thing, whereas what we find taking place in Jesus is this freedom of movement uh, to be able to love uh, people, even if it's on the Sabbath. You see what I'm saying? The law said, hey, don't do this or that on the Sabbath. But Jesus moved beyond that and actually changes the meaning to a certain extent uh, that the law was created, uh, I mean, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what we find taking place is Jesus, and we're going to look at this in a second, moves beyond the original meaning and uses the spirit of the law of love as his guiding compass to be able to take that which was laid before and is to be built upon for a new time, a new age, and so forth. So um, you have any questions or comments there before we move on to the next thing? No? Okay, so how many of you watch, um, how many of you watch cooking shows? Anybody? Okay. So there is a, there is a, um, a, a show called Top Chef. Anybody familiar with that? So in some of the cooking shows, and there's a whole slew of them, um, in the competition of the contestants, they're given the same ingredients, but they have the freedom to create whatever they want to come up with. So you have whatever, uh, let's say 10 or 12 contestants, they're all given the same ingredients, the same amount of sugar, the same amount of flour, the same amount of milk, whatever it might be but they are given the freedom to create what they want out, out of the ingredients that have been given to them. So the end results will be quite diverse and creative. Um, they won't all make the same thing. They will uh, cook according to maybe their custom or maybe um, their, uh, their own personal likes of what what they like to taste or whatever, um, that type of thing. And the same ingredients can produce dishes that are different, not only in taste, but also in texture and in look as well. So I think this is a good illustration as well. It's all the same basic ingredients, 
but there's the freedom to adapt it and to use it. So if we draw this analogy, the Bible can become the ingredients of a life of love, uh, and then it will depend upon people to use wisdom to um, know how that love looks like within their own context and set of circumstances. So there's a variety of illustrations that we might come up with here. Love might look very different in certain families. Um, maybe you have a blended family rather than an original nuclear family. Um, is the law of love gonna operate differently where you have step brothers and sisters and a mom and a dad that need to figure out how to love children that are not their own um, whereas in other families where there is a mom and a dad and the kids are their kids together well there's that inbred natural love that's there because it's their offspring whereas in a blended family sometimes there might be a challenge to figure out how to love all the kids equally because all the kids are not a part of um, the offspring of the mom and the dad. Or how about a, a child with special needs in the family? What does the law of, look, of love look like for a child with special needs? Um, how, how does that change the dynamic of a family? Um, what about kids that get into trouble? What does the law of love look like uh, for people, uh, for kids that have made foolish decisions and so on and so forth. So you have the same ingredients, let's say a family, but it can look very different. The situation is different and the law of love needs to adapt to what that particular situation is. That makes sense, everybody? So it would then be very arrogant of me as a pastor to preach a sermon on family life and say, all, all families need to look like this because there's a whole host of different kinds of families out there. So the, the principle is, mom, dad, how do you love your kids? Um, and, and the situation is different and it might look completely different. You, you, can't, you can't make a law that applies the same across the board because the situations are different. So you see how freeing this becomes? The law of love grants us the, the ability to take the ingredients that we see of love as illustrated through God, through Christ, uh, through uh, things that we see in the scriptures or examples we see in life, mentors that we look up to, whatever it may be. How do we then apply it into our own situation and how do we advance that um, in our own time and in our own development and so forth. So thoughts there? So here's a line here. Using the same ingredients, facts, we've, we've been talking uh, so far in this study, we have facts, we have meaning, and we have wisdom. And all of these things are different types of truth. So fact truth, you know, which might be logical or might, might be scientific, 
meaning truth, which might be uh, what I cherish or have passions for, that type of thing, and wisdom truth. Um, how do I apply it in a meaningful way? So here's the line I came up with. Using the same ingredients, i.e. facts, to make something unique with unique skills, i.e. meaning, that other people experience as good, which is wisdom personified, fulfills the law of love. So we might all have the same facts, but we might have different things that bring us meaning. And how do we experience love positively in a good way? And that that requires wisdom. So, you know, you find uh, people that are in similar situations, coming back to the family illustration, if you have a child with special needs, your best friend are other parents that have children with special needs as well, because they you can draw upon their wisdom, you know? And I can't speak into that. I don't have a child with special needs, but I can empathize with uh, someone who might have a, a child with special needs, pray for them, support them, encourage them, but there's no one that can give them wisdom like someone else that's in the same situation. So I've thrown out a, a whole variety of different types of illustrations built on these couple of parables um, as an illustration to the fulfillment of the law of love. Does anybody have any comments or questions? Okay, so so we come back to Top Chef here for a moment. What if contestants did nothing with the ingredients, but look at them on the show? Would they advance in the show series? No. Secondly, what if contestants did not want to take a risk? I'm just going to keep all these ingredients in the bowl. I'm not going to take any chances whatsoever. Well, Anytime you try a new recipe, there's a risk, right? There's a risk that it's not going to turn out. So uh, who is going to hire a chef who never tries to create something new? In other words, let's say a new restaurant is opening up in town and they're going to hire a new chef. And they're interviewing the, uh, this lady or man that comes in to be the chef for that restaurant. And they say, what are some of your ideas of things that can really create a buzz about our menu? And that person goes, well, nothing. I'm, you know, we're just going to buy all our ingredients from GFS and, <laughs> and make the same old thing. You know, you kind of go, well, you're not hired. I'm, I'm hiring you to be creative and, and to use your knowledge to come up with something good and something new. And in many ways, that's what God is doing in the law of love. He's saying, I'm giving this to you. I've shown you what love looks like. That's part of what the cross is all about. And so how do you use it? So last point on here. What if we changed our perspective from trying to get the one right interpretation to being faithful to the overall trajectory of the Bible? In other words, we bicker a lot of times within Christianity about which is the right interpretation rather than looking at the end result of is it leading people into mutual respect and love and service and that type of thing. Uh, because quite frankly, 
you know, you have different scholars, I said this last week, that could prove their system to you using the same set of uh, verses. And the reality is, we don't know sometimes what the one correct interpretation is. We try to come up with a good interpretation of the best of our ability, but a lot of times there are other people that look at it completely different, and yet we can be mutually in sync with each other to love one another and serve Christ and serve other people. And I think that part of where the New Testament is going, especially that Romans 13 passage. Romans, even though the first part of it is very theological, it's all uh, a setup for chapters 13 through 16. I want to get a hold of a book and look at it. There is a, um, there's a, uh, an author by the name of Scott McKnight. He's a professor up at um, a seminary outside of Chicago. And the book is called Reading Romans Backwards. And the reason it, he titled it that is he thinks uh, most people think that the, the purpose of Romans, because there is so much theology in it, that that's the end goal of it is to, to give a correct theology. And what he is saying, though, is, no, this is written to a group of Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And that's the emphasis of the end of the book. What if we read Romans from the back to the front, we would see how this theology plays into the overall goal of these two different people groups uh, actually learning to love each other and become unified uh, in the Church of Rome. Fascinating concept. And um, if, if I get my hands on the book, uh, that might be a good good uh, thing to talk about in the future. But um, so Romans lays this law of love down, and then what we find is that he lays all the footwork to it early in the book, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and so on and so forth, to kind of level the playing field so that one group doesn't look uh, down on the other, and that they can mutually love one another. Thoughts on that? Anything on that? Okay, so now I want you to go, if you're still in Matthew, to go back to chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. So in one of Jesus' sermons, and we call this in chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus makes this statement in verses 17 through 20, and um, let's come to chapter 5, verse 17. He says here, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The first thing I want to say here is um, 
that he's not talking about getting into heaven here. He's talking about entering the kingdom of God. He's talking about um, the dynamics of the kingdom of God. And what we find taking place is he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I've come to fulfill them. But he then says here, uh, you're, you must surpass what the Pharisees are doing. So unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So a couple things here. He's not negating the foundational importance of the Torah. Um, he's showing respect for it, but he's saying it's not a dead set of facts, uh, that you need to develop it. You need to uh, mature it. Um, and he is offering a, a new interpretation of some of these things. And what he, uh, that is what follows. So if you look in chapter five, you're going to see in verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 38, verse 43, he says this, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So he then takes the Torah commandments and he says, okay, now is the time where we need to uh, develop this and take it a little bit farther. And he says, in so doing, you will fulfill the intent and purpose of the law. And um, when he talks about fulfilling the law, I don't think he's talking about an end in the sense of, okay, we're going to fill it. It's completed. It's finished. I think the idea of, being, of fulfilling it is fulfilling the intention of it. So it says in verse 21, you have heard it said uh, to the people long ago, do not murder. Great. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then he talks about reconciling with the brother. Therefore, uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to your brother. So he advances it. He, he says, it's one thing not to murder someone, but you can hold hatred and even murder in your heart towards someone else. No, the fulfillment of this whole set of commandments is to take it further and then he does give some practicalities to it look at verse 25 settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer you may be thrown into prison yeah, if what he's saying is if you have a dispute with somebody legally try to resolve it before you allow the judge to make a verdict on you. Um, so he takes this whole concept of murder and he then says, now let's advance it. Let's take it farther down the line. Don't hate people. Try to settle matters quickly. Boy, that's, that's taking it a lot farther down the line than just do not murder. You see what I'm saying? 
is you've been given the ingredients, do not murder, but you've got to take it farther uh, in order to uh, fulfill it or mature it. And um, so what if, just what if, fulfilling scripture in the way Jesus is using it here in the Sermon on the Mount is a creative act where we find new meanings for the Bible uh, based on discernment and experiencing God in the present. In other words, just like in this illustration, what if do not murder is not the end, but do not murder is the beginning? Do you see what I'm saying? There's a whole difference there. Maybe the commandment is not the end. Do not murder. Do not take another person's life. Maybe it's not the end of the conversation. Maybe it's the beginning of the conversation. In other words, ah, okay, I'm not going to take somebody else's life, but how do I do that verbally? Uh, you, did you see here? He says, hey, if you say uh, to your brother, Raka, which is sort of like a curse word, he's answerable to the Sanhedrin. In other words, he's moved from the physical to the emotional. And so we all know situations whereby um, a man and a woman are married and um, there's an old joke, divorce, divorce, uh, divorce never, murder, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but, the, um, um, but the idea is, okay, they're not going to murder each other, but they do slay one another verbally. Uh, and their, you know, their marriage is built on a lot of uh, disrespect and so forth. So I, I hope that makes some sense a little bit of what Jesus is saying here. You fulfill the law or you continue to be creative in fulfilling what has been given by making it alive and relevant to your life where you're at. And uh, in so doing, you're taking it farther than the Pharisees and the scribes because they just wanted you to obey the, the law. So uh, not the intention of it. Yeah, go for it. Uh, oh, they just got a call. Yeah, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thanks for letting me know. Yeah, I saw they dropped off the Zoom. So, yeah. So, yeah, well, let's take a moment. Let's pray for Bud and Shelly. I'm sorry to hear that uh, his dad passed. So let's pray for a second. Lord, we do pray that you'll be with Bud and Shelly right now as, um, as they adjust to the loss of his dad. We're thankful for the long life that you gave to uh, his dad. And we just thank you, Father, for the wonderful relationship that uh, uh, he had with Bud and Shelly and just be with the family now in their loss and in their heartache and in their grief. Uh, help us to show our love for them and uh, just be with them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I saw they dropped off. I didn't know if uh, if maybe their internet went out or something. So thanks. What's that? Yeah, he uh, he was he was declining. He was uh, 90, 93 years old. Yeah. So, yeah, he was declining, but so thank, uh, thanks, Espy. Appreciate it. Yeah.
All right, so uh, we're gonna finish up here in a second, keeping it alive and relevant. Um, most churches are afraid to apply the Bible in any significant way to our current world. We tend to feel safe when we're in, in the text of, of the past. In other words, oh, yeah, as long as that applies to them, um, I'm okay. But bringing it forward uh, is an important part of taking wisdom and taking facts and 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 bringing it forward. So I want you to turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And what we find here is uh, beginning in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 3, it says, you show that you are a letter from Christ. So this is kind of like now contemporary, the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In other words, well, it's great that the law was given, but don't leave it there. What the whole intent is, is for it to um, to develop our hearts into a heart of love. And the only way that that is possible is with the help of the Spirit. Do you see it right there? Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It's something now. It's something uh, alive that's dwelling within us. It's the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us and helping us and uh, those types of things. So if um, if we stick slavishly to the letters on on the Bible page, we're never going to keep it alive and relevant. Um, it's sort of like the talents that we mentioned earlier in the parable of Jesus, taking those talents and just kind of burying them rather than seeing how it applies to our life and how we can uh, continue to grow in love toward other people. So here, if that's not uh, clear enough, then uh, go over to John chapter 16. So this is the upper room discourse. Jesus knows that he is about to depart and he makes a promise that he's going to give the Holy Spirit to the disciples. And what is this spirit designed to do? So in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 in the Gospel of John, he talks about the Holy Spirit and he even makes this outrageous claim when he says, uh, it's better that I go away because when I go, you, my spirit will be given. So having said that, he begins to wrap it off in chapter 16. And it says in uh, verse five, he says, now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asked me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. So he says, I'm going to be killed, basically, and I'm going to go. Now, he says in verse 12, jump down to verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. In other words, I've been with you three years, but I haven't told you everything. But when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet 
to come. In that verse, he says, there's much more for you to learn, to know, to grow. But you can't take it all in in this moment. It will be unveiled over time through the power of the Holy Spirit. He will continue to guide you into all truth. And that becomes our great challenge. Through the Holy Spirit, how do we take the text as we have it? And how do we allow it to guide us into new truth uh, that uh, helps us to fulfill the intent of it? And that is to live under the law of love. The promise of the spirit is the promise to guide us into something new. So what we're going to do is summarize now uh, before we close up. So let's come back to this idea of the law of love for a moment. So Jesus does not leave us completely directionless when it comes to know how to reinterpret the Bible. And I say that tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but that's what he does. Jesus kind of reinterprets the Bible. So back in Matthew 5, if you were to read through the end of the chapter, you have, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He says that over and over and over and over again. So he's going to take what has been given. He's going to advance it. He's going to keep it alive and relevant. So uh, just a couple of thoughts. The religious authorities of Jesus' day we're always trying to trap him, but he rarely answers their questions directly. But the one time that he does is when someone comes up and give asks him this question, what is the greatest commandment? You'll find that in Matthew 22 verses 36 through 40. And when he says, uh, he says, okay, you have heard it said, um, you know, and he quotes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18. He says, you've heard it said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that fulfills everything. But then, we probably should turn to Matthew 22. He makes this interesting statement. So in Matthew chapter 22, when he is answering this question, down to verse 36, Jesus replies to uh, this man who says, what is the greatest commandment? Verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that comes out of Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. But, Verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And that's new information. Okay, you don't find that statement anywhere in the Old Testament. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus advances this as a new development. All the law and prophets hang on these commandments. In other words, he takes it forward. The commandments are there in the Old Testament, but there's nothing that says all the law and the prophets hang on these two. So Jesus takes this and he advances it. And as he does so, what he's going to do is uh, suggest that everything that we are given in the scriptures cannot sit stuck in the past 
it needs to be taken into our own day and age. So if we're going to follow Jesus on how we read the Bible, we must follow the filter that he uses, which is the law of love. The only way to keep the Bible relevant is to follow his lead. There are hundreds of ways to interpret the Bible, just but all these interpretations must lead to love. Let me say that again. There's hundreds of ways to interpret the Bible, but all interpretations have to lead to love. If it does not lead to love, then it misses the mark. So what we find is Jesus will sometimes change the meaning of the ancient traditions in light of a new law, the law of love, that he is introducing not only in his teachings, but in his life as well. So um, you, this might be something uh, new to your concept. Is there anything that you want to uh, ask or any questions that you might have that uh, we can finish up with tonight? So when you hear somebody saying, you know, you let's say you're watching TV and you come across a television preacher. And you hear him or her saying something and you go, I wonder if that's the truth or not. Well, you might not have the, the working knowledge to be able to, to understand whether that's true or not. But if you will use this one question, does it lead to love? If it does not lead to love, then it's off base. Okay. So if you find, I'm going to get on televangelists for a second here. If you find televangelists coming across and saying, okay, the Bible tells you you need to tithe 10% of your income and you should send it to me. And a, a, an older woman, a senior woman or man, gets caught up into believing that the Bible actually says that I need to send this TV minister this amount of money, even though they can't pay their rent or their utilities, then, you know, they might be caught up into thinking the Bible actually says that, but it doesn't lead to a life of love because a life of love would not ever, ever, ever ask a senior man or woman to give to them if they can't make their their rent payment or their utility payment. And I think if you just kind of keep this in mind, it will just kind of help sort out a lot of the confusing things that um, we run across. So that's all I have for tonight. You have some thoughts, questions, comments? Hopefully it, um, hopefully it makes some sense. Um, take the sheet and look at it again and maybe take some time and read the, the scripture references that are there. But uh, if you don't have any comments or questions, then that's where we'll finish for tonight. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. Bye.